This has been Modern Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. Today, I'm having a conversation with Richard Hewitt, a researcher in history, culture, and religion. Richard spent 20 years in Kyrgyzstan, living with a royal family in the Tanshan Mountains. There he got his second name, Rizbek. In this episode, we'll discuss Rizbek's experiences in Central Asia, his research of Kyrgyzstan's culture, and more specifically, its legendary epic, Manas. I'm very excited about this topic. Thank you for joining me today, Richard. My Welcome. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Before we begin, could you discuss your background, how you got inspired to travel to Kyrgyzstan? What was your initial interest and what happened there? When I was a teenager, I had an interest in the Bible, which I call the script. And I, I wasn't in formal religion or religious institute. It was just a kind of a grassroots interest. There was a, a teacher, like a counselor at the school where I was going, a public school, who invited me to breakfast and he'd talk about certain passages in the script. And um, the more I started reading it, the more I started to feel a tug on my heart. And I just wanted more. I was hungry for this, this amazing book and the message in the book. I read and read and had a few experiences with God with Jesus or Isa, as the Kyrgyz would say. But I never got into this institutions, never interested in them. I went to the University of California in Santa Barbara. And while I was there, I was studying chemistry. And then I closed my chemistry book and I read the book of Luke. And the Kyrgyz have a character named Ulukman, who is very similar to Luke, the author of this book and the Bible and the script. I read it. I was really moved. I closed that book and I walked around the library in Santa Barbara praying and I walked by a map of the world. And when I did, I looked at it and the mountains of Central Asia jumped out and grabbed my heart and pulled me in. And so I responded to the call. It wasn't, a, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a vision, but it was a very powerful spiritual experience. And I responded to the call. That was in 1987. I didn't get to Kyrgyzstan for seven more years until 1994 after the Soviet Union collapsed. But during the time in between, I did go to northern Pakistan, lived with, with some of the minorities in Pakistan, a group of people called the Hazara people, who in some ways are similar to Central Asian. When you went to Pakistan, did you practice agriculture or you just spent your time researching and just communicating with people? I just was communicating with people. I wasn't doing very much agriculture at that time. And after that, you went to Kyrgyzstan, right? In 94, I went to Kyrgyzstan, right? What was your experience there? How did you meet the family you lived with? And how did you get your Kyrgyz name? I have a background in agriculture. So I went there and I was working at the Agriculture University. The way the Soviet system works was very different than the way the American system. And so I had a lot of difficulties teaching there. But while I was teaching agriculture there, some NGOs, some non-governmental organizations came up and asked if I would help with some of the, there were nutrition problems in the high mountains. So pregnant and nursing mothers were often only drinking tea and eating bread. And so we tried to bring in some new vegetable crops up there and it was very successful. 
We brought seeds from the high mountains of Idaho in America to the mountain regions in Kyrgyzstan. So I went up to the high mountain to bring more vitamins and nutrients to the area. A lot of farmers thought that they could only raise wheat or barley up there, but we were able to introduce carrots and potatoes and kale and a number of other crops that just were able to increase the nutrient level and the really the survival of the children up there too. While I was doing that, I tried to find the most successful farmers. And one of the farmers was an elderly man, hard worker, non-alcoholic. And he invited me into the family. He had 12 children and I was 13th. Age-wise, I was actually the fifth. So I've got four that are older than me and eight that are younger than me. Wonderful. How old were you when you got there? 28. You spent all these 20 years in the country or were you coming back? Yeah, and I would come back to America probably once every year or two. So I, it's about every 18 months I come back and see my parents and just reconnect for a week or two. Interesting. Let's talk about your spiritual and religious discoveries okay. in Kyrgyzstan, something that you describe in your book as well. I would uh, like to first touch upon your discoveries about the epic manars and the pulse you see with the scriptures. Could you talk about that? I'm going to do a little bit of a backstory because while I was up in the, in the village doing this agriculture work, I'd see a lot of similarities between the Kyrgyz and the ancient Hebrews. And when I think of ancient Hebrews, I'm thinking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, David. I, I, there were similarities, like even the, the Jewish Passover, it's taken from the book of Exodus before the Israelites left Egypt. And God commanded that they kill a sheep, they bleed it, and that they don't break the bones, but they cut at the joints. And they eat the meal through the night and don't go outside. And they eat it with certain herbs. And, and when I read that, I actually, I'd read that before I came to Kyrgyzstan. So when I saw the Kyrgyz practicing the same practices, they lead the sheep, they'd offer it. First of all, they'd offer it to God. Um, they'd often say, they pray with their hands out and say, God, please receive this innocent soul on our behalf. They pray that before killing the sheep. Then they bleed it. And then when they cut, when they butchered it, they would not take an axe, like often Uzbeks and Kazakhs will just take an axe and go right through the bones, but the Kyrgyz would take a small knife and just cut right at the joints. And they cut the whole thing into 12 parts, supposedly for the 12 tribes, the Kyrgyz, the Israelites had 12 tribes. There were definite differences, but the similarities, the underlying similarities were massive. And the Kyrgyz, right at the end, when they finish butchering the whole sheep, they'll pull out a tendon from the hip on the sheep. And Kyrgyz, they eat everything on the sheep. But the, this one tendon on the hip, the Kyrgyz pull out and they don't eat it. And I would ask them, why don't you eat this? You eat everything else. And they'd say, our fathers just taught us never to eat it, never to eat it. And sure enough, there's this odd verse in the scripture that says, Jacob wrestled with an angel. And the angel said, let me go. And Jacob wouldn't let him go. And finally, the angel touched Jacob on the hip and Jacob became lame. And the last verse of Genesis 32 says, 
For this reason, the children of Israel don't eat the tendon on the hip to this day. So I started seeing all these parallels between the ancient Hebrews and the Kyrgyz, and I started talking about it, writing about it. I got invited to some academic conferences. The Kyrgyz would often say to me, you Westerners say you believe this book, but you don't do anything it says. We don't believe it, but we do everything it says. I started seeing these parallels, and I, and I made a list of them. My list of similarities got, went from 20 to 50 to 70. And when it got up to 70, I started to ask God, where did the ancient Kyrgyz and the ancient Hebrews cross paths? And I looked at, at Scripture again, some of the of the Israelites were the Moabites and Canaanites and the Hittites. I looked at all these different groups, and I couldn't find real academic evidence for a passage. I talked to Kyrgyz scholars and Kyrgyz scholars did say, yeah, we were in Egypt at one time or we were in Sinai at one time. So there was a little bit of a, like a memory that the Kyrgyz had of having been in the Middle East, but it wasn't really strong. I was praying. Another year went by and my list got longer. And then I was up in a mountain drinking this drink that the Kyrgyz have called hummus. It's fermented horse. And I was up in a yurt, high mountains, pastures, sheep and horses all around me. And the shepherd in the yurt started to tell me the story of their hero, Manas. And Manas was a shepherd boy who killed a giant and became king of the people. And that's a parallel in the story, a story of David, who was a shepherd boy, killed a giant and became king. And Manas's best friend was the son of the king that wanted to kill Manas. And David's best friend, Jonathan, was the son of the king who wanted to kill David, Saul. So I started to see these parallels, in and I just listened to the story as he was telling me. I understood Kyrgyz well enough that I could understand the majority of what he was telling me. And then parallels were, were getting bigger and bigger. I see another parallel with Samson, another parallel with Moses and Joshua, and then um, after a lengthy time, the storyteller, the shepherd stopped and just asked me, do you know the name of Manasseh's father? And I said, no. And as if he was sent from God, he leaned forward and with big eyes, he said, Jacob. And when he said Jacob, it just hit me like Jacob, Jacob and Jacob. And all of a sudden I realized that the one place where I hadn't looked for the similarities between the Kyrgyz and the Israelites, ancient Israelites, was within the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I was up in the mountains. I didn't have the good book with me. I went back to the city and opened the book, read these, the passages again. And I felt like I was reading the scripture with new eyes. Like I had never seen some of the history, but there, there's a history in there that says, the Assyrians came and attacked first after Solomon's son did was really stupid. And the, the 12 tribes of Israel were split into 10 in the north and south. And there was a civil war and the south became known as Judah. And we, the Jews are descendants of Judah. And the north was known as Israel or Ephraim or Joseph. Their capital was Samaria. And they existed. There was a civil war between the north and the south, between Judah and Israel for probably about 100, 150 years. And then Assyria, the superpower, came and attacked the 12 
or sorry, the 10 northern tribes and took them as captives before they attacked the Israelites that fled to probably Carthage or up to modern day Armenia. Um, so the whole nation just was completely decimated within a, a time period of about 20 or 30 years between 740 BC and 720 BC. And those tribes never came back. Another 150 years passed, and then Babylon became the superpower, and they attacked Judah, and they took Judah captive for 70 years. And after 70 years, under the rule of the Persian king Cyrus, the Jews came back to Jerusalem. But Joseph's tribes never came back. And we don't really, like, I never saw that. After I learned that Manasseh's father's name was Jacob, and one of the tribes is Manasseh, and so Manasseh and Manasseh, and Kyrgyz names won't end with a soft sound, so Manasseh would become Manasseh or something like that. So I started down this amazing trail of the lost tribes of Israel. You've been invited to academic circles and to conferences yes. and academic yes. events to talk about your fi findings. What was the reaction of historians, of anthropologists? That's a good and hot question. I found a lot of favor because the evidence was so overwhelming. But I also had some very strong opposition. And there is one. There's, a, there's one man who actually wrote in a public newspaper that like, the, the Kyrgyz people turn against me in jihad, like basically kill me and say that out direct, but he did say it indirectly. But I don't want to focus just on the negative. Again, the Kyrgyz are just a wonderful people. I really have a lot of admiration for them. And there were a number of people that were absolutely astounded. It's interesting because Kyrgyz are a Muslim nation. And so one of the accusations that was often brought against was they would say, you're trying to make, you're trying to make us Jewish. You're trying to convert us to Judaism. And that's actually not on my agenda at all. I, first of all, stumbled upon this. I wasn't looking for it. I'd never been myself a missionary or really a religious worker, although I did follow this call, which, was, which I believe was from God. But um, they, there was a lot of division and some, this nemesis that I had while I was living there, he was able to drum up a lot of support against me. And he wrote quite a bit in the newspapers against me. And he himself was ac an academic and was from the Soviet era and had a reputation. So he was able to shut me down a number of times, get me kicked off of... Uh, a newspaper that I was writing for a little bit. And then he also, he had me removed from a conference, at least one conference. I was invited to a conference and then the conference organizer came up to me and said, listen, I really want you there, but if I don't, if I invite you, then half the academics aren't going to come. So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And by that time I knew what was behind the disinvite. I just got shut down more and more around 2012, 2011, and I moved back to the U.S. in 2013. I don't want to say I ran away because the opposition was bad, but just there was 
fewer opportunities to speak at that time. I have been back twice to two academic conferences since then and really enjoyed them. But again, there's a new generation of people, a small voice again, that are against me. And I say small voice, I mean like a minority, a smaller group of people. They are a loud voice, but they're not the majority of the people. When you returned to the United States, you also took part in some events in the United States as a speaker. Yes. I'm from Santa Monica, California, and Santa Monica actually has a large Jewish population. And so there is just a few events where I was invited to speak to a Jewish Christian secular. And I actually found that this message, the message of the lost tribes, the message of my experience at Kyrgyzstan is a beautiful way to bring the script to a wide range of people. Like I can talk about the good book with Jews and Christians and atheists all together. And it was absolutely amazing. The atheists were fascinated by the historical background and the historical context that I was presenting. The Jews were fascinated by the way their Jewish culture and the Torah could be found in places incredibly far from the Judeo-Christian world. And the Christians were interested for the same reason. This book and how it relates to tribes that have no Christian or Jewish background. And I, I say no, but I think way in the past there obviously was some background. Yeah, I love speaking on this topic. And what do you think about interfaith dialogue? Is it different from traditional ecumenical movements? Good question, Ina. When I was first fascinated by the scripture, I was not interested at all in interfaith meetings. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was interested in interfaith meetings and went to them, but found that they were often trying to compromise one, one person's message to find common ground. And what I've found with this now is that nothing needs to be compromised. The book speaks for itself. There's nothing in the book that, in my opinion, that is saying convert to Judaism or convert to Christianity or change your religion. This never would have happened if I hadn't been in Kyrgyzstan, but I just love interfaith and ecumenical discussions now because for me, uh, one of the messages that I feel like one of the holiest messages I can say to Kyrgyz is, be Kyrgyz. I don't want them to be Western Christians or Israeli Jews or Arabic Muslims or Japanese Shintos. I want them to be Kyrgyz. And they have this beautiful ancient faith. It's pre-Islamic faith. And again, I'm not saying this against Islam, but they have a faith called Tengir Chilik, and or the, worst, the worship of Tengir. And it's absolutely beautiful. And there's nothing in the good book that's contrary to that faith. I, just last month, I, we had a discussion about Shintos who believe that Jesus is Messiah, or Isa is Messiah. They call him Yesu, or they actually have another name for him, Uzamasa, this ancient name. And they're not changing their religion. They're practicing Shintoism from their culture with a faith in everything the book says. And the places where their culture maybe went against the book, Shintoism up until the 8th century had been monotheistic, and then after the 8th century it became polytheistic. So some of the modern Shintos are looking at a god that they worship, and now instead of 
looking at that, that God is a God, they're maybe vetting that God is a person who is maybe one of their ancestors in the past and needs to be honored but not worshipped. And sometimes maybe it's actually a God that they don't want to worship anymore. So they are, they're still staying within Shintoism, but they're not, there are some adjustments that they're making. There's no question about that. But those adjustments, what they, they're doing is they're going back to the origin of Shintoism and they're being fulfilled Shintoists. This exists in every culture. Muslims, I read the Quran several times. And in my opinion, when I read the Quran, the holiest person in the Quran is Isa or Jesus. I know Muslims who believe in Isa, in Jesus, but they're staying within Islam. And they don't feel like they're being hypocrites. They feel that's the right thing to do. For me, what I see is instead of two different religions coming together, making compromises to try and find a place where they can meet, they're actually coming to this person, the protagonist of the book, this one book, and finding all their commonalities right there in the book itself while maintaining their distinct, so the diversity remain. For me, it's not amazing. And I've had this discussion with intellectuals and scholars, and we debate. We don't always get eye to eye, but the scriptural background for this is there. In my opinion, the anthropological, archaeological, and historical evidence for such a connection is all there. And I've been back to what some scholars that were against me have said. When it comes to actually arguing and actually having an intellectual discussion, there is so much evidence for the Kyrgyz being from the tribe of Manasseh, so much evidence for God's heart for all nations to come together while maintaining their, their unique identities. I have a lot of fun discussions. Let me wrap it up, Adina. Absolutely. And how to explain all these spells that you find in religious texts all over the world? How do you explain this, say, on the spiritual level? On the spiritual level, it's interesting because I could answer that question from two different levels. One would be the spiritual or religious level. And my belief is that God simply loves all his children. I've got two boys who are very different from each other, and I have to relate to them differently. And they, have, they themselves have different cultures. One of them likes to stay inside more. One of them likes to go outside more. But they're both my sons. And one of the things I have to keep telling them to do is, you guys need to love each other, work together. And I feel like God's same way with all of us. Like, we are so different on some levels. But God just wants us to work together and, and all. But also, the script itself, is a, it's, it's a story. So we start with Adam and Eve in creation. And then we go all the way through to the, the Messiah coming back. I think we're getting closer and closer to the end of the story. We look, we have this amazing history that we look back on. And part of the history that is in the script is we started off as, was from two parents. And then we had Noah. And then after Noah's, Noah's three sons went in different directions. And then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the big monotheistic religions often go back to them or look back to them or find their roots in Abraham. And we even have what we call Abrahamic religions. And then we have Israel and the, the civil war that I talked about. And then Israelites, the northern tribe, 
Joseph's descendants being spread throughout the whole earth. And I believe that they took with them, they took stories of the Torah and they took stories of faith in one God. There was a, a man by the name of William Schmidt who in, I think it's 1910s and 1920s, gathered information all over the world about how these incredibly distant indigenous tribes had faith in one God. Sometimes they would worship other gods, but ultimately the, they had a faith in one God. Some of them had lost connection with that God. God or there's, there's a number of tribes or ethnicities in Asia that consider themselves people of the lost book. So in Altai and in Northeast India, places in China, you find these people that have a memory of a lost book. And I, I actually consider Kyrgyz to be one of those people too. The Kyrgyz have a line in the monastic that the Chinese came and destroyed their book. So these sort of stories like just spread out and spread out. Jews taught me that in the end, it was these tribes, these scattered tribes of Israel have to come back. And I've gone back to the scripture and found the verses where they developed that theology from, and I agree with it 100%. They have to come back before Messiah or when Messiah comes back. So there's going to be this big finale right at the end of the human age. And I think we look at what's happening around us in the world. and Things are changing quickly. And I think this is time for everyone to, to wake up spiritually and look what's happening around us. That's true. And now it's time for my last question related to the title of this podcast, being modern, being human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human? It's such a good question. Again, I'm in Santa Monica and Santa Monica is very secular. So being a person of faith in Santa Monica, sometimes I feel like a dinosaur, the opposite of being modern. But the thing that's so exciting for me is right now, like we often have childhood dreams of world peace. And one of the things I see is that just because of my background in Kyrgyzstan and with the script right now, I feel like I can talk with people from any background, any faith, whether it be atheist or Muslim, Islamic, or Native American, or Shinto, or Hindu, or Buddhist. There's all these connections from the script and back to the script. And, and uh, I personally think that the further we get away from the script, the more archaic we're becoming. And a lot of times, it's this ability to talk with people from different backgrounds, bring us back together. We find commonalities. We can love and respect each other. We just celebrated yesterday, we celebrated Norus. And Norus is this beautiful holiday celebrated with Persians and Turks, Kyrgyz celebrated. It's absolutely beautiful. And then today is the beginning of Ramadan and Islam. Again, that's something that I want to celebrate. I'm not going to hold a fast this year, but it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. And then we've got the Jewish Hasah coming up. And we've got Christian Easter coming up. And these are all things that I feel like without hypocrisy, that's what I want to say. Without hypocrisy, we could just celebrate and enjoy together. So for me, I guess being modern and being human is just enjoying like the whole human experience. And uh, from coast to coast, from North Pole to South Pole and East to West. And it's really amazing what God has put in human DNA 
and human culture and human history. It's fascinating from one another. And we have a ton to learn from one another. So I guess for me, being modern, being human is really just modern being human. Wonderful. (laughs) These are beautiful words. Exactly. We have more similarities with each other than differences. This conversation has been so inspiring and so humane because when it comes to religion, we often talk about religious intolerance, but talking about something that unites us is not that it's something that doesn't happen that often. It's been a pleasure. And yeah. let's be human and let's live together. And let's be modern. I think I love being modern too. We've learned a lot from the past. We're coming to the end of the good narrative, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out to me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy being modern, being human, I'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is so valuable to me and helps you make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.